1: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: And so you have to have the capacity to receive the that text message and reply with a verification text of your own. So that's what those SIM banks allow you to do. It allows you to really scale up your operations. And in general, I'd say that that's what I think we were seeing in these documents was the sort of systematizing and, and making more efficient things that we kind of knew the Russians were doing so that it was easier for them, so that they could do more of it, so they could be more ambitious in, in the way they really came after Western targets.
1: I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 11th, 2023. Document leaking has been in the news lately, and not just stories about the leaking of US intelligence documents. On March 30th, 2023, The Washington Post published a series of stories about the Vulcan files, an international investigative project based on thousands of pages of leaked documents from a Russian company that reveal new details about how Russian intelligence agencies seek to operate disinformation campaigns and enhance their ability to launch cyber attacks with the help of contractors. To talk about the Vulcan files, I sat down with Craig Timberg, senior editor for collaborative investigations at the Washington Post, who, along with his colleague Ellen Nakashima, has bylines on these stories. We talked about how the Washington Post got involved in this investigation, what the documents revealed about Russian cyber conflict, and what Craig considered to be some of the biggest takeaways from the documents. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 11th. Craig Timberg on the Vulcan Files. Craig, before we get into the substance of the Vulcan Files, can you talk about how the Washington Post became involved in the investigation? We
0: have um, a, a group of partners around the world at other news organizations who we work with fairly regularly. And so one of them this this group of this this German group called Paper Trail Media contacted me you know last summer and said hey we have some really interesting documents that you might want to look at and I said great and they said but well, we we can't give them to you <laughs> unless you meet us in Las Vegas so I flew to Las Vegas
1: wow. and they handed
0: me a, a stick with a bunch of documents on it and I flew back and started the conversations internally at the Washington Post about whether and how we could be part of this consortium.
1: So how were the files acquired and what, if anything, can you tell us about the identity of the leaker or what his or her motivation might have been for leaking the documents?
0: I mean, to start with the end, we, we don't know who the leaker is and and nobody who worked on this project knows who the leaker is. One of our partners, um, one of the German partners received the documents through an encrypted secure drop and you know had conversations with this person through some encrypted chat app and in those conversations which now are you know you know were last year the the leaker said I'm really concerned about the Russian attack on Ukraine this company is doing bad things and I want you to reveal it to the world I'm paraphrasing there a little bit but that was the gist of the conversation and So the German reporter had a a few exchanges on this encrypted chat app and, of course, was trying to learn more and establish the identity of this person, et cetera. And then this person said, you know, I need to go. It isn't safe anymore. And that was it. That was the last communication we had with this person.
1: So given that background and the fact that the documents appear to be confidential documents from a Moscow-based cybersecurity contractor... NTC Vulcan. How did the Washington Post or other news organizations go about verifying the authenticity of the documents?
0: This is kind of a reporting problem from hell when you think about it, right? You have documents that are fascinating and revelatory, but unlike, say, the Pentagon Papers, weren't handed to us directly by somebody we knew. And this is something that happens more and more. We, all of your major news organizations have secure drops where leakers can just put things can just put things in and you get them and you have to try to make sense of them what we did in this case was you know we spent months and months and months that's why the story took so long looking for evidence in the documents that matched evidence in the real world references to programs references to individuals um, the documents have quite a few references to individuals who, who we were able to identify and programs that we were able to identify through other means. But ultimately we had to share excerpts of the documents with experts who, who knew something about this company, could read the technical writing in a way that was more illuminating than it was for a bunch of reporters. And, and then ultimately we, we start, we had to approach, you know, intelligence agencies and say, do you know this company? Do these documents look real to you? And we had a, we had quite a few conversations like that with a, with quite a few intelligence agencies ultimately.
1: And it sounds like the intelligence agencies were willing to work with you on this, at least to some extent.
0: Some of them were to some extent, right? Uh, you know, it's not like one can just wander up to these places <laughs> and call you call their press line and say, "We have a bunch of secret Russian documents. Uh, can you put your stamp of approval on it?" I mean, it, this this was an arduous process involving you know, multiple news organizations over multiple months in multiple countries. And in the end, you know, five Western intelligence agencies looked at them carefully enough and were able to cross-reference material and documents with other material they had available to them. And they said, yeah, these look real. And then they shared with us some insights about what they thought the various documents meant, what what the intentions were. So that was helpful as well. I mean, this stuff is just super rarefied. It's not like, you know, It's not like you can call your average, like, you know, law professor with a background in cyber and say, you know, can you make sense of this stuff? It isn't, those documents are not like that.
1: So I have to ask because I'm a big Star Trek fan. I I noticed that of course the word is spelled V-U-L-K-A-N in English, but any thought that this could be an intentional reference by the company to uh, the Vulcans in Star Trek?
0: You know, it's a great question to which I don't have a great answer, <laughs> as is, as has oftentimes been the case as we've reviewed these documents. Is we're left with questions we can't answer about what the authors intended and in, by what they said and wrote, and that includes the name Vulcan. Vulcan I gather means volcano in Russian, so like it's 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 a it's a word. Um, at the same time, you know the IT world is very into techy things, including Star Trek. You know, and and there's some there were some references in the documents that are, and in sort of ancillary materials that are in, in English language. So clearly, people spoke English. So I don't know; it's possible.
1: So can you give us a general sense of the size and scope, meaning the broad topics that this cache of documents covered? And and were they all well? You just kind of answered this question. There were references or, or some. Parts that were in English, but were they primarily written in Russian?
0: They were overwhelmingly in Russian. So uh, there's more than five thousand pages of documents, and you know they're not unlike the Snowden documents, which I also did, did at least a little bit of work on. You know, a lot of this stuff was not that clear and easy to make sense of. I mean, you you get user manuals you get training guides. guides there's contracting documents in some cases there's documents that appear more than once with editing notes in it saying including editing notes that sound a lot like things editors have said to me about my stories over the years like can't we make this clearer or can't we just say that you know so this is like funny human quality that's lurking in the documents but they're overwhelmingly russian you know and they're not you know they're not external facing documents by and large they, they're trying to they're you know it's like they're It's technological people speaking with other technological people. And so it it made it really hard to make sense of exactly what was going on.
1: So let's do a deeper dive then into the substance of some of these documents and your investigation. Can you give us a better understanding of exactly who this contractor, NTC Vulcan, appears to be and what it does?
0: they're, They're a maker of software in Moscow that for some years had, you know, reasonably extensive ties with, with, with Western companies, including, you know, Boeing and IBM and Dell, right. They were a vendor and there's no reason to think any of that work was intelligence work or defense work, but they also had this intelligence and defense side. It seems clear from the documents where they were making software for, you know, Russian state security services and a sort of affiliated institutes and, so, you know, this is probably not that different from some American companies that do work for our, you know, defense and intelligence agencies, but also have a kind of commercial side as well. And it's, you know, they're, they're, there are quite a few of these companies in Russia. We, we were told uh, that there probably are dozens of companies that are kind of fit into this category, broadly speaking. This is just the company we happen to have documents from.
1: And I note in your reporting that you connect Vulcan's work to what is often referred to as Sandworm. Can you tell us what Sandworm is and talk about the significance of this connection?
0: Sandworm is essentially the most notorious state hacking group in the world. They're the ones who hacked into the 2018 Olympics opening ceremony. They're the ones who have shut down the power grid in Ukraine a couple of times. They're the ones who released NotPetya, the most economically damaging Malware in history, so they're like (laughs) they're real A-listers in the hacking world, and every cybersecurity researcher knows them. Uh, And I frankly wish we had more from from them in particular. What we we actually had, there were a couple of references that made us believe that some of the software was developed for Sandworm, if that makes sense. So there, one of the documents, there's a reference to military unit seven four four five five, which is their you know, their unit number and, and it's, there's a line, you know, approving a particular piece of software. And so like that, you know, that seems pretty direct. And then there's another place in the, in the emails and the documents include some emails that make it pretty clear that they were visiting Sandworm's headquarters um, outside of Moscow to sort of demonstrate some of the software. So that gave us, you know, the hard thing about these documents was that, you know, we didn't have, they don't have a lot of contact with real world things like, you know, here's a list of things we want to hack, or here's a list of things we just hacked, or here's, here's where we're going to hack these things. So we were really very eager to try to understand Vulcan's work in the context of things that had really happened in the in the world and that we that were observable. And so these references to sandworm, which were not voluminous, were really helpful in, in allowing us to understand kind of why, you know, why Vulcan's work mattered.
1: So, do the documents provide some degree of insight into Russian hacking targets? Like, you know, who Russia was interested in hacking?
0: Yeah, I mean, they they help you understand what was on the minds of people working in this field, and and, and you know, and on some level, you you won't be surprised to know <laughs> that you know that when Russians think about hacking external targets, they think about hacking external targets you know in the United States and Europe um, there there is a a kind of mock-up of a map that shows uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Switzerland as a kind of like theoretical target there's a on that same page there's a reference to a nuclear power plant uh, that's also in Switzerland as sort of like a theoretical target There's another page we can see an illustration that refers to a place called Fairfield in the in the United States but doesn't specify which of the many Fairfields in the United States It was referring to but we took those references to be more about training and sort of user scenarios as opposed to actual real world targets which is not to say that you know russian hackers hadn't tried to hack into these places but we we couldn't find definitive evidence that they had so we had to we had to treat this stuff gingerly and there's another thing like this There's, there's this map of the united states this may be my favorite graphic of them all that has all of these mysterious circles in places you know, where there's a lot of population centers, but also a lot of internet connections. And so like, right, obviously the Russians think about the United States, but the thing about it that was sort of delightful was that the US states were listed in Russian. Again, not surprising, but you think, oh, right, this is how this looks. This is how our country looks to a Russian hacker.
1: Sure. And other kinds of insights, you know, big picture that perhaps you were able to learn from the documents. Uh, More about Russia's goals or military philosophy was any of that kind of information present
0: yeah i mean the I think the I think the most striking thing here and this is again this for people in the field, this is not exactly surprising, but the the russians the Russian military doctrine does not make a meaningful distinction between cyber attacks meaning sort of hacking into things and what we call influence operations, which, you know, the efforts to manipulate how the world perceives things. So what the Russian internet research agency did around the 2016 U S election, that was an influence operation, right? They formed a bunch of fake accounts and they, you know, they, they, they praised Donald Trump and they trashed Hillary Clinton and they praised Bernie Sanders, et cetera. Right. That's, that was an operation intended to influence the U.S. US voters. So, they the Russians think of this as just like another kind of hack. It's like it's like a it's like a hack into our brains, if you will. And you can see the sort of porous borders in the way these documents describe things. And and there's also a little detail on exactly how, for example, you can make a bunch of fake accounts quickly on Facebook or Twitter or, or you ha- or you know whatever. You could see sort of the toolkit, which is interesting because I've, I've seen a lot of these campaigns taken apart from the outside. You know, researchers try to make sense of like what are these accounts? What do they come from? And we always presumed that it worked exactly like this, but it, it, it does work exactly. They're sitting at computers, they're making a bunch of fake accounts, they're getting them verified, and then they're putting manipulative stuff up there.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: I appreciate that these are documents from one company. But based on your investigation, how would you characterize the role or significance that private contractors play in Russian offensive cyber operations or cyber conflict?
0: The contractors are important. And again, this is probably not that different from, the, from our analogous U.S. agencies. right? The, the NSA doesn't make all its own software in-house, I'm guessing. The CIA probably does not make all of its own software in-house. They use contractors. And so the Russians do too. It's more efficient. You have companies that specialize in certain kinds of things and so it certainly looks like Vulcan is one of a constellation of companies that that you know that makes software that makes russian hacking campaigns work that um, and you think about like your own place of employment right there's at the washington post we have like what we call a content management system which is where we write and edit stories but we also have like a payroll system and we have email we have you know the ability to share documents across different parts of the company you know the Russian hacking teams are the same way. They 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 need. It's anyway. It's a lot easier and more efficient for them to just pay other people to make a lot of this more routine software.
1: So you already noted that you've discovered that there have been some um, prior connections between Vulcan and Western big tech companies. Was Vulcan on the radar screen though? Of do you think of Western governments and these big tech companies as? sort of a player assisting the Russian government in its offensive cyber operations or influence operations?
0: Yes. Um, they were a company on the radar of, of intelligence agencies and uh, you know sort of the most sophisticated cybersecurity companies. But my sense is that nobody knew all that much about them until now. And again, there we think there's 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 you know several maybe dozens of these companies and Vulcan was one of them. And I think it's clear that the documents that we obtained have sort of significantly expanded, you know, what the world, including probably Western intelligence agencies know about this, about this particular company. Um, so it was on the radar, but it wasn't like, I I, I never got the sense that this was necessarily the, you know, a major focus of investigation until now.
1: Interesting. And in your story, sort of to dig a little deeper again into the contents of the documents, you talk about how the documents shed light on certain projects directed at automated or automating disinformation. Can you talk a bit more about these projects?
0: There's a there's a project called Amazit, um, and Amazit seems to have a lot of different parts to it. Like, I mean, I'm not sure we ever got our arms around everything that Amazit did. But since you're asking about disinformation, this is the program where there's sort of step-by-step instructions for basically how to stand up and operate a disinformation campaign. It tells you what kind of hardware and software you need. It tells you you know, the step-by-step how to create a bunch of fake Facebook accounts. One of my favorite details is, in part because I can visualize, again, I've sort of covered the external manifestations of these things. So sort of seeing it through the eyes of, of the Russians is interesting. Like they're sitting there with computers, but also what they call sim banks. And sim banks are a piece of hardware you can put a bunch of sim cards on. You know, sim cards are what make cell phones work. And so the way the you know what you use sim cards sim banks for is you know I'm I'm running some disinformation campaign. I want to create you know three thousand you know new Facebook accounts. Facebook is going to send out verification text for each of those accounts, and so you have to have the capacity to receive the that text message and reply with a verification text of your own. So that's what those SIM banks allow you to do. It allows you to really scale up your operations. And in in general, I'd say that that's what I think we were seeing in these documents was the sort of systematizing and and making more efficient things that we kind of knew the Russians were doing so that it was easier for them, so that they could do more of it, so they could be more ambitious in, in the way they really came after Western targets.
1: So you also talk about in your story, the documents providing some insight into Russian efforts to map out critical infrastructure or facilities. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, th- there's a program called SCAN. and one of the things it does is it basically is like Scanning <laughs> the whole world, looking for um, vulnerabilities. I, I I gather you could aim it at a particular target, but what they're doing is they're is they're identifying and stockpiling the way you could go after targets. So if you wanted to, if we use the example of the Swiss nuclear power plant, you you don't just you know go on the homepage of the Swiss nuclear power plant and, and start trying to hack into it. You you know you you have to evaluate all of their computer systems, and you need to look for vulnerabilities in their computer systems that you can exploit. Maybe an old piece of software, maybe um, a computer that hasn't been kept up to date. And so what Scan does is evaluates targets and then also evaluates how you could get to those targets if you wanted to hack into them. So it's a kind of a preliminary step, but you could think of it as as sort of mapping. And so we knew that hackers had software that allowed them to map out Vulnerabilities, but here we're again we're seeing it systematized and auto- automated. And, and what I'm envisioning is, like, let's say that you wanted to, you know, get into Fort Meade, like the big, you know, mil- U.S. military base in Maryland, where NSA and a lot of other things are. You know, you could call up NSA and you could see a bunch of potential vulnerabilities that, as a hacker, you could you could later exploit.
1: Now, as a companion to the big story that you wrote with your colleague Ellen Nakashima, you also wrote a separate story where you discussed some of the key takeaways from the Vulcan files. And I'd like to talk to you about some of the most significant takeaways from your perspective. But before we get to that, do you have a sense of how big a deal this leak was, perhaps because of its intelligence value, or perhaps because it's a dissension in the ranks, so to speak, and maybe that doesn't normally happen?
0: I'm embarrassed to say that I don't really know. I mean, Russia has become so walled off from our ability as journalists to observe it I mean, this of course has gotten even worse with the arrest of the wall street journal reporter there but but you know since the invasion and the build up the invasion it's been extremely hard for the washington post and its peers you know new york times and wall street journal bbc you name it like the guardian we all are having way more trouble getting into the country operating safely in the country talking to people writing things that might get people thrown in jail so our insight into that country has radically diminished over the past, you know, year plus since the invasion began. And so I don't actually have a lot of insight into how big of a deal this is in Russia. I presume that, you know, there's some intelligence value, you know, for the Western intelligence agencies that are are trying to make sense of Russia as well, but I don't actually know how big it is.
1: So turning then to the companion article that you wrote, um, what are some of the most significant takeaways from the Vulcan files for you? i
0: think I think the big takeaway is is that you know this is this is hard, right? it's 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 hard work and hacking and building disinformation campaigns. And the Russian security state was looking to how to make it easier, right? They presumably have a finite number of really elite hackers, and they don't want them spending all their time, you know, tooling around. You know, a target trying to come up with a list of vulnerabilities um, that they can begin to hack at. They they want them sitting on a platter for them. They want a menu of choices just to save everybody time. So again, I feel like we're we're seeing we're seeing that hacking is not something that's done on the side or in some basement, but it's a it's a part of a it's part of a large effort that involves public and private entities working together, substantial amounts of money, with the intention of. Manipulating targets better than they, you know, better than they could otherwise, and that includes disinformation, it includes hacking and surveillance, but it probably also includes some degree of, you, you know, attacking real world targets. We see puzzling but say intriguing references to rail lines, seaports, air traffic. Um, these appear to be training documents, but again, you know, like you know, they're eyeing us, I guess, all the time and trying to figure out what's worth doing and how to do it, and then how to do it is as easily as they can. So that's for me is the biggest takeaway. It's also was sort of fun and revealing to get a little bit of a glimpse of, of the corporate culture in a Russian, you know, company that that does this kind of work. We were able to talk with a small number of former employees who described a kind of pretty happy, you know, kind of like startup-y, you know, workplace, the kind of thing you might find in Silicon Valley, you know, it paid pretty well. They They had good tech, there's this one hilarious thing that we found. There's a there's a repository of malware called uh, called Virus Total. It's owned by Google, and in there, there's a piece of of Vulcan malware that we found. We're really excited. Oh, maybe here's the secret like cyber weapon we've been looking for. It turns out it was a New Year's Eve invitation. So you like downloaded it. It takes you over your computer. It renders a very sort of like pixelated image of a big bear and a, champ- a champagne bottle and some champagne glasses and <laughs> it wishes you happy new year. And it, um, and it plays Soviet military music in the background. So I thought, well, this, you know, <laughs> there's something, there's something very clever about it that, that is, that, it, you know, again, you, you sort of think, Oh, well, there's real people behind this, right? That there's like, there's like humans who are doing this work and some of the time they need diversions just like, just like all of us do.
1: So I have to note though, too, that you, in your the companion piece you wrote, you talk about essentially that, you know, war has consequences. And, and I, I think you were getting at at least what you and your colleagues doing this reporting and in various news organizations um, learned about the motivation of the leaker, what he or she at least was willing to tell you. Yeah,
0: there's been a few leaks now out of Russia since the invasion. It's clear, you know, the... The IT economy in Russia has been really hurt badly by the reaction to the invasion. Lots and lots and lots of people working at companies have fled to other parts of the world. Some of them are really alienated. Maybe they thought they were doing patriotic work and now are realizing that they're contributing to this, you know, this terrible thing, these terrible things that are happening in Ukraine. And some of them clearly are, are using their skills to, to hurt, Russian companies and the Russian state. So, it, I guess our point is that, you know, when you take your country to war, there are lots of unintended consequences that come with that. And this leak appears to be one of them.
1: So, is this an ongoing investigation? Might we expect more stories from either the Washington Post or some of your other news outlet partners?
0: I'd say maybe. When we put a lot of work into that, and some of our partners did multiple stories. So if you happen to read German, the Germans who got the original leak have done a, did a whole mess of stories in a video and a podcast. And so there's already a lot more stuff out there for people who have the ability to access it. I think we would like to do more on this, but we have to find some, we'd have to find something new and revelatory to, um, to publish a new story. But I think we're all ears. I mean, we'd like to, we'd like to keep, we'd like to keep pulling back the veil if we could.
1: And I presume it's it's difficult to know but if if there is any fallout from this story in Russia it'd be very interesting to learn about
0: well well precisely right I mean if, if there was if there was fallout that we were able to perceive from here we would
1: we would write about that sure is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners that perhaps we haven't touched upon
0: you know I guess it may be obvious um, but maybe it's not that this is not the kind of thing even a big high-powered news organization like the Washington Post could have easily done on its own. I mean, the reason why we enter into these collaborations is really twofold. One, it gets us access to material we wouldn't otherwise get. So this this landed with some Germans who happened to like us enough to invite us in. So it was nice to be part of this as opposed to just reading about it later. But the other thing is, you know, when we team up with, with other news organizations, you know, they have sources we don't have and we have sources they don't have. And so you know, we started with the question of like, how do you verify documents whose origin you, you can't verify? And having a bunch of reporters in a bunch of different countries who are really good at what they do, that um, have sources all over the world, made this work much easier and more powerful than it possibly could have been if only one news organization had done on, on its own. So I think it's these, these big collaborations, these sort of multi-nation international collaborations are kind of a newish thing but man, when they work it, they're, they're a beautiful thing. You can you can just do reporting that you really couldn't do any other way. And I was really glad to be part of this. And I was glad to have contributed to the you know this multinational effort to, to learn what we could about this company.
1: So I, I would note that you are the senior editor for collaborative investigations at the Washington Post, and you've been a part of other collaborative investigations. It sounds like this one worked really well. And sort of advance the ball on the model? Am I reading too much into your comments?
0: You know, all of them have worked pretty well. This was a much harder story than some of the others we've done just because the target was so difficult. I mean, a company we didn't really know in a place we don't have that much access to with very high stakes for correctness and thoroughness and not misinterpreting things. And so I'd say... You know, I've done some complicated stuff in my career, like including the Pegasus Project a couple of years ago, which was another one of these big international consortiums that was about surveillance software. I think this was the hardest we've done so far, and I think you know both of those are just a real vindication of a model that we didn't even try to do ten years ago. I've been with the post a long time, and I think if in you know if earlier in my career if someone said, "Here we've got a bunch of documents in Russian." Uh, And and the leaker is anonymous. And we have no idea how we're going to verify. I I don't think we would have done this story. It was because of our ability to make these sorts of partnerships and the comfort we've gotten with with our very high quality partners around the world that made us feel like this was a target we could take on. And that's a real, that's an important thing.
1: Well, I think that's a good note to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
1: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.